Well, today I want to start off with a, a question for you. And the question is this. Have you ever received an email, maybe a letter, but when, when you read the words of it, your stomach just started to churn? You felt that apprehension and that discomfort and that angst within your belly? I remember I, I received an email one day from one of my professors in seminary, and I don't remember really anything that the email said, but the one word that stuck out like a sore thumb was plagiarism. Now, there are times in my life when, had I plagiarized intentionally? Absolutely. But that was, you know, well before I had, had you know, become a Christ follower and was making him the first in my life. But as a seminary student, you know, I was, I was trying really hard not to plagiarize. I, I was citing my sources, and they were all cited there. And so I was not only, you know, felt this angst, but I also felt confused and baffled. Like, what is going on? Like, I'm, I'm trying not to plagiarize. How on earth am I being accused? And so the next morning, I went to that class, and I, I went early so I'd have a chance to talk with the professor. And I asked her, I said, you know, how is this, this plagiarism? Like, I look right here, like I cited all my sources. And what she told me was, was, was a really helpful life lesson in plagiarism. She said, what you wrote was essentially a regurgitation of the author's ideas. It was so close to the original that you really should have put it in quotes. But she said, if, if you're claiming that to be your own work, it was plagiarism because you took so much credit for the author's work. And so here's the lesson of plagiarism. Whenever we, uh, it doesn't matter if, if we're intentionally plagiarizing or not, whenever we take another person's credit and claim it as our own, that's plagiarism. And so now you might be thinking to yourself, like, why is he going on and on so much about plagiarism? Well, the question I want us to ask today and to think about for ourselves and our relationship to God is, you know, do we give God the full credit he deserves? Or are we taking some of his credit for ourselves? You know, are we giving God the, the, the credit that he deserves for who he is and what he has done and what he's currently doing in our lives? Or do we forget and take that credit for ourselves? And maybe to you that seems like a really irrelevant question. It seems like a question that has nothing to do with you, or, or maybe you can see like, some of its relevance, but I assure you, it, it, it is a relevant question. And here's why. Because you and I are already answering that question with our life. You know, we're already answering that question with our attitudes and our actions of who we are giving credit to for our life and the things we do and the accomplishments we have and the, or we make and the things we have. And we are already answering the question of, who are we going to give the credit to? To God or to ourselves? And so a passage that I feel like really addresses this question, really addresses the tension of this question is Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in this, this chapter, we see that the Israelites, like, you know, they're standing right on the edge of the promised land. You know, they've been in the wilderness for the last 40 years, and they could not be more excited to enter the wilderness. They could not be more excited to see the wilderness solely in their rearview mirror as a distant memory. And I think right now, we, we probably can identify more with this passage than maybe we've been able to for a long time because, you know, over the last year, we too have been in this worldwide wilderness moment. You know, this moment where our plans have been dashed to pieces and where uh, anything that was kind of normal has been taken away and life is not the way that it was before. And so I think we can really identify with this passage as well and, and what God wants to take us to take from it as well this morning. And so as we dive into this passage this morning, I think 
Moses has a lesson that he wants us to take from the wilderness and that he wants Israel to, to take from the wilderness as well, and that he wants to press upon us this morning. So I'm going to read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and then we're going to dive into what that lesson is for us. And I just realized I left my Bible on the ground. I guess I'm a little out of practice here. I haven't preached in about two months, and so I've got to go grab that Bible. All right. So if you want to follow along, it's, it's on the screen behind me where you can follow along in your Bibles again. That's Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It reads, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go and to possess the land of the Lord that he swore to give your fathers. So even right there, just notice that that's the heart of God. He wants them to live and to multiply and to possess the land. And he wants good for us. Verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you do not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out. And your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know that in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. So this past fall, I remember we were in a community group with some people in our church. Um, and unfortunately, that church, we had to close it down as, as a, another uh, result of the pandemic. We were a small church plan, and with so many people moving away who were younger, and we got to an unsustainable size. But I remember we were, uh, before that happened this fall, we were having a conversation in our small group about, you know, what God was teaching us in the wilderness. I think that's probably a question that all of us have reflected on at this point. And, and the, the commonality from all of our answers was that we all kind of realized that we were more receptive to God in the wilderness. Is that something you've also noticed in your own life? That we noticed that we were more receptive to hearing what God had for us. We were more receptive his, to his correction in our life. We were more receptive to hearing and discerning the will of God in our lives. We were just more open and receptive to God. And that, in so many ways, is the, the design for the wilderness. That, that's, that's God's intention for the wilderness. You see, because when God took Israel to the wilderness, he was taking them to this barren place, this, this wasteland, which our text said didn't have water. And the point of all of that was to teach them to depend on God. And we find that in verse 3, especially where it says, And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you do not know, or your fathers did not know, that he might make you know. And so here's the, the lesson. That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so in the wilderness, what God wants to teach you is that no matter your season of life, no matter your circumstances, that you live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know, you do not live by the number of dollars in your bank account. You don't live by how big your, your retirement funds are. You don't live by Starbucks, you know, that really helps me in the morning. You don't live by the food you eat or the places you go or the entertainment you have or e even your time in the church. No, instead, you live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what this really means is, is it's saying that God, you know, by his word, he created us. 
and he sustains us. And so you can't even walk down the street without the help of God. Like, if you say I rely on my own strength, it's like, well, where did that strength come from? It's all from God. And so the, the lesson of the wilderness, like what God wants us to learn in the wilderness is that we are completely and utterly dependent on God for all of life. You know, what God wants us to learn in the wilderness is that you are completely and utterly dependent on every minute, every second of your life. You are completely and utterly dependent on God. And this means that God, you know, he deserves a lot of credit. And this is a lesson that we learn in the wilderness, and, and it feels intuitively true. You know, it feels intuitively true when, when we uh, realize our inadequacy, when we, re- we realize we're more in touch with our limitations or our finiteness. You know, we, we, we experience this to be true. And yet what Moses is warning is, is when we move beyond the wilderness, when we move to a more prosperous times or to a kind of a more regular season, our feelings are going to change. And so he begins this warning here in verse 7, if you want to follow along. In verse 7 he says, For the Lord your God is bringing you to a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. So he's really saying this is a really great place he's taking you to. In a land in which you can eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But here's the warning. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments his rules and statutes, which I've commanded you today, lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all you have is multiplied, then in your heart be lifted up, which means pride, and forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty grounds, where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. And I love that last line there, to do you good in the end. Now it tells us God's heart that he wants to do good for us, like he wants our welfare, he wants us to flourish. And yet if we think about like, like what is the temptation in the wilderness, like think for yourself right now, like, like what has been the temptation over this last year it's it's been the temptation to complain. That's like what what Israel did over and over again. They grumble in the wilderness, and when we have to reschedule our plans, or when, you know, we we wanted to go to prom, and that was was canceled, or we had, you know, all these plans of, of like, time with family, or vacations, or trips, or even, like, a picture of what life was going to look like, if we're tempted to do anything, is to complain. But when we're in a season of regularity, or a season of prosperity, there's this new temptation. Did you see what that temptation was? Let me just reread you just the, the highlight that really, really expresses this temptation. It says, and you shall eat and be full. So this is our new reality. And then it says, the warning is, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord. And so the temptation of the wilderness is this, to forget God. You know, I've heard this described, and I have to say I've heard it described because I don't want to plagiarize, but I've heard this described as the prosperity dilemma. And the prosperity dilemma is this, that the more God gives us, the less we feel we need him. Isn't that true? 
Haven't you noticed that in, in your life or others' lives? That the more God gives us, the more he blesses us, the more he takes care of us, the less we feel we need him. Because sure, like we really needed him when we were going through a difficult time, when we were going through maybe cancer treatment or when we were having financial difficulties or when we were unemployed or when you know, our, our kids were, were getting out of hand. But you know, when things are good, we kind of feel like we can take it from here now. I was having dinner with a friend uh, this last week, and, and he, he's not a Christ follower. He, he identifies as an agnostic. And he asked me what I was preaching on, and I, I told him about this idea of the prosperity dilemma. And right away, he was like, oh, yeah, I can, I can identify that in my life. Like, in, in the seasons where, where life is hard, I get angry at God. But at the same time, I'm asking God for help. But in the seasons when life are good and things are, are great, he's like, I don't even think about God. And I think, you know, for even all of us who are Christ followers, like, that reality still is true for us. Maybe that we don't not think about God, but maybe to some degree that we don't quite think we need him as much. And when we ask, like, how does this happen? You know, the, the text tells us. It says that when God blesses us, when he provides for us, when we're in a season of prosperity or just a season of normal life, we have two choices and two choices alone. You can either praise God for it or you can forget and the sad truth is that the, the more we forget, the less we feel we need God. The more we forget what he has done for us, what he is doing for us, the less we feel we even need God. But let me tell you a quick story that I think really shows what this actually looks like. When we think because of the, the things God has given us, when, when we are trusting in those things, trusting in his good gifts as reasons to not need God, let me just paint a quick picture of what that looks like. I had a friend a number of years ago, and she had a brother, and her brother was in conflict with her family. And I know that, like, no one else in this room has ever had any conflict with family, so, and just, just suspend reality for a minute, just imagine of, of a family conflict going on. And in this, this family conflict, the, you know, it got so bad that these parents said to their son that, you know, unless you shape up, unless you reconcile with us, that we're going to cut you off, and we're not going to pay any more of your private school tuition. And this son you know, he, he thought he was going to do it on his own. He, he thought that he could do it on his own. He didn't need his parents anymore, and he was going to, you know, be his own man, no longer live under the, the rule and authority of his parents, and he was going to just do his own thing. And so he, here's what he did. He called up his, his stockbroker, and he told him, you know, liquidate all my assets. You know, I need it to pay for my own college. I need to be my own man. I need to do my own thing. His broker warns him, though. He says, you know, like, if you do this, I mean, this is a retirement account. Like, you're going to pay a massive early withdrawal penalty. And he says, you know what, but I, I need to be my own man. I need to pay for college. I need to go my own way, and so I need to do this. And he says, okay. And he sent him a check, and he paid for his own school. But if you're a discerning listener, which I, I trust that you are, you might be asking yourself, how does a 20-year-old young man have a retirement account? Oh, I mean, of, of course, it's because his parents put all the money in there. And so what this young man was doing was he was using the gifts, the good gifts that his parents gave him in order to rebel from them. He was using the good gifts that they gave him to make it on his own. And he didn't even realize the irony of the whole situation. And that's what we look like when we don't think we need God because of the good gifts he gives us. Or we don't think that we need God as much because we've received so much from him. It's like a 20-something that doesn't realize that all he has is from his parents, that everything we have is from our Father. But you still might be tempted to think, but yeah, but that's not my situation. 
maybe someone in the back of our minds. That's not really my situation. Like, I've, I really haven't earned the things I have. Like, that promotion that I got, like, no one gave that to me. Like, I hustled everyone else for it. Like, I was, I was there on the weekends. I was doing late nights. Like, can I say I earned that on my own? And God, you know, check out verse 17. He, he, he knows the human heart so well. Now, I'm just blown away constantly coming to Scripture of, like, how little both the human heart has changed and how well God knows our hearts. In verse 17, he anticipates this objection, and he says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Man, that is a prophetic word for us this morning. I just want to read that again. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. See, what God, isn't say, what God is saying there, he's not telling us that, like, we have no role in the process. Like, of course, like, if you work hard, like, you know, that, that probably will, will result in, in promotions or, or receiving more things. But what he's saying is to never forget who, who is empowering you. Like, what can you do on your own? You can't get out of bed on your own. You can't even exist on your own. You can't beat your own heart. You can't breathe your own air. You, like, I remember I had this, this friend who was a doctor, and he was explaining to me just the complexity of the process of, of taking in oxygen and, and, and what happens in our red blood cells, like when we actually breathe, that it's like just this incredibly insane process just for every breath we take. Did you do that? Did I do that? No, I mean, we're completely relying on God. So yes, like we, we can acknowledge that we have a role to play in the process, but what, what God is saying is to not forget that he is the one that is empowering us to even receive any of the wealth that we might have a hand in creating. And God, like, what, what I think he's calling us to right here, he's not calling us to, to fake what reality is, but he's calling us to, to just embrace reality, embrace who he is, embrace his role in the process. You know, for many years, I, I, I found humility and pride just, just like a, a strange subject. Like, I, I, I knew what pride was, even though I didn't follow Christ, and I, I still found it obnoxious. Like, that person who, their favorite sound in the world is their own voice, I found that kind of arrogant and obnoxious. Or, or the person who just, you're having a conversation with them, and they literally ask you no questions about yourself, but they talk their ear off about themselves. You know, I, I found that frustrating and obnoxious. And yet, you know, neither was humility appealing to me either. You know, humility just seemed like, you were really uncomfortable with any attention, that you were really uncomfortable with any recognition, and you just had to deflect that. Like, it was almost like an evil to receive any credit. But notice, that's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is that pride is an overestimation of our role in the process, where humility is acknowledging reality. It's not underestimating what we did, and it's also not overestimating what we did. It's acknowledging, yes, that we had a role to play, but it is God who has empowered us. But the real danger of pride is where it leads, when we don't think we need God. When I, when I talked to the, you know, the average person on the street, like as a church planner, I had to you know, just talk to a lot of people and um, talked to a lot of people at Faith over the last five years. And one of the common things I heard, it kind of surprised me. It wasn't that people didn't believe that God existed, because most, most believed he did. And I think the most recent stats I see is like 95% of Americans believe there's some sort of higher power. And so they don't not believe that God exists, and they also aren't angry at God. Like, the average person I talked to, like, there wasn't antagonism at God. Like, sure, some were, but for the most part, people weren't angry at God. I mean, the biggest thing was indifference. 
And doesn't that make so much sense when we read this passage? How, how indifference is what happens when we have a lot of things, but we forget who gave them to us? Like indifference is where it leads when we do not give God the credit that he so eagerly deserves. And look where this leads. Verse 19 says, If you get the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you surely shall perish. For the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. I, th- I think this passage is so fascinating. I've just been so... It's just been so engrossed in this passage of, of what the reality it's saying. You know, for, for, for the longest time, I thought, like, if, if we don't obey God, if we don't follow God good enough, maybe as Christians, you know, maybe we won't, you know, make it into heaven, or, or for, for the non-Christian, like, you know, it's just because of their disobedience that, that God has turned his back on them. But that's not what happened with Adam and Eve, and that's not what's happening here. Like, when we, when we don't give the credit that God deserves, it says that we, we turn away from him. Now, that's why I said, like, the average person finds God being indifferent because when we don't give God the credit he deserves, we just, we just don't see the need for him. Like, what's, what's the point? And that's something that we even wrestle with even in the Christian life where we can still think, like, well, I still have to be good enough in some sense. Like, yes, I was saved by grace, but I still have to be good enough in some sense for God not to turn his back on me. But again, that's not what this passage said. Instead, what it's saying is that unless we give God the credit that he deserves— we find him irrelevant, and we turn away from him. And where could we possibly think we're going when we turn away from the author of life? You know, Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. So where on earth could we go except destruction if we're turning away from the author and the sustainer of life? So we need to give God the credit. It's, it's actually like, it's part of our heart health. It's, it's like who we were made, it's what we're created to be, is to be people who express gratitude to God. So how do we do that? And when you look at this passage, there's really one word that you see again and again, both explicitly and implicitly. There's one word that that kind of sounds with this resounding gong, and that word is remember. Remember. Moses says in verse 2, Remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 18, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And then Moses reminds us of the story of God, of of what he's done faithfully in our lives when he says, verse 14, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See how he's reminding them of what God has done for them? Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness. He's saying, remember that God and don't forget him. This last week, my wife and I were having one of those budget conversations. You know, because in losing my job, like, you know, thankfully my denomination gave me a, a severance, but you know, that was a number of months ago now, and, and my severance is almost coming to the point where it's almost gone. And so we we're going to have one of those fun budget conversations. My wife is a total type A, like, she has all of our, you know, expenses on, on an Excel spreadsheet. Every, everything we've ever purchased is flagged on there and color coded. And so we were having that conversation about finances, and she was telling me, you know, just, just where we were at in this process. And I remember as, as we spoke, and then that night, like, I just couldn't sleep well. 
I just kept kind of rolling around in my bed as I just felt this anxiety about, like, you know, how am I going to provide for our family? Especially because, you know, right now we actually have another child on the way. We, we have a, a two-year-old and we have a, um, you know, soon-to-be infant to be born in, in July. And so I, I just remember just feeling this anxiety. But then I realized, like, man, this actually is a dangerous place for me to be. Because if, if I take credit for the jobs that I don't get, if I, if I take credit for my failures, not that it's necessarily failures, but if I take credit for the, when things don't work out, you know, then I'm also going to take credit when, when things do work out. And I feel like it's all on me, then all of the credit I'm going to give to myself. And I'm going to feel anxious the whole time as well. And so what I did is, is you know, not only repented, but I just, I reminded myself of God's faithfulness. I reminded how, you know, this isn't the first time I've been in this situation. Well, maybe with a kid on the way, but this isn't the first time where I haven't had a job and I've had to, you know, provide for our family. And when we, when we moved to Champaign for my wife to do grad school, I, I didn't have a job, and I, but I found one there and ended up finding a church where I worked at part-time as well, and it worked out better than I ever could have planned. And then afterwards, when we moved back to Chicago, my wife didn't have a job, and, and I was going to be a full-time seminary student with no income. But, you know, God provided her first with a part-time job, which, you know, you do the math, wasn't going to sustain us. But then, you know, shortly after that, he provided her with just this wonderful full-time job that she still works at to this day. And so what I was doing in that moment and what, what God calls us to do is, is maybe you're familiar with the song, Come Thou Fount, where there's that lyric, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And Ebenezer is not a word that we would ever use, but it is used in the Old Testament. And an Ebenezer what, what was this, a situation where you would just pile a set of rocks in a place that was significant. And you'd pile these rocks in a place where, where God had been faithful to his people. Maybe he'd delivered them from an enemy. Maybe he had brought water from this place. But you would have put this, this physical reminder so that as you went through life and as you were beginning to forget God, you would see it and you would remember his faithfulness in your life. And so, you know, as followers of Jesus or wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, when, when you read the Bible— you know, in many ways, that is an Ebenezer, as you're seeing God's faithfulness to his people again and again and again. And, and what I want you to know is, is that their story is your story as well. Like, you know, we also, as, as far as Christ, are taking our place in the grand narrative of Scripture, in the grand narrative of God's promises. And so when you read God's faithfulness to his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, like, that's, that's his faithfulness to you. That's his faithfulness to me. And yet, as you read the pages of Scripture— you know, whenever we maybe try to, to really give God the credit he deserves and we say, you know, I'm going to double down on this. You know, as you read the pages of Scripture, you're going to be reminded that the human heart is broken. That even for the people who have been redeemed, like, like there still is this, this, this sinful nature that we still have to wrestle with. And there's just this propensity of all human beings to stray from God. You know, all human beings have, have, at some point will take credit for God's work, or even, even just, you know, for me, I'm just, half the time, I'm not even aware of, of the credit that I should have given to God because of my circumstances or, or any number of things or the education I received. Like, I give myself the credit, but, like, I had no say of when, when I was born, to whom I was born, the privileges I've received in life. You know, that, that's, that's only can be given to God. And so there's only one person when you read Scripture who again and again consistently and perfectly always gives God the credit in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing. Isn't that fascinating? This is Jesus here. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. 
You know, Jesus realized what we so often forget, that he was completely dependent upon his father, that he could do nothing without his father. And then even after like the great miracles he, com- he accomplished of like turning water into wine, of, of feeding crowds of thousands, and when they wanted to make him their king, when they were desperately asking him, take the credit. Check out how Jesus just continues to respond in John eight fifty eight. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father instead who glorifies me. You know, so Jesus lived from beginning to the end with this perfect recognition that he was in utter dependence on his father, even to his last words when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, in Jesus' death, like he took the punishment that we deserved for not always giving God the credit that he deserves. But imagine what that's like. That's like if someone plagiarized our work and we chose to take the punishment for them. You know, that's God's scandalous love right there. But the good news gets even better when we realize that the, the, perfect, live, that the perfect life that Jesus lived that we could never live, you know, he gives us that credit for that life as if we lived it ourselves. That's the good news. And so, as, as we kind of close here today, what, what I hope you don't take away from today is one more thing that you have to do in order to appease God. I mean, it's a good thing for us to do, but like, if, if we look at this as one more thing that we need to do in order to justify ourselves before God, it's either going to lead to fear or pride. When we think, man, I'm so much better giving credit to God than those other Christians over there. What I, what I hope instead you take away from today is just a desire to give God gratitude. That like, from a, a deep well within your heart, it would be bubbling up of just this desire of, of as you realize what all the Father has done for you, you, you long to give him your love and your gratitude, not because you have to, but because you get to. So remember him. Remember him who, who scandalously loves you. Remember him who graciously died in your place. And remember him who lived the life you could never live so that you could have life to the fullest with the Father.